Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. So, to kick things off today, we have a correction! And I'm actually so thrilled to give this correction, even though the fact itself is kind of a bummer. In episode 106, we said that each member of a writing team receives a full salary, while all our other information is, to our knowledge, correct... Writing teams split one salary between them, which is a bummer. Womp womp. However, how can I verify that this correction is accurate? Because it was given to us by Steven Skaya himself. If you recall, he was one half of the writing team of that episode titled Burnout. He listened to our episode, so thanks so much, Steven. You and Matthew Fetterman are welcome on our podcast anytime. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's really exciting. And of all the things to correct, I am happy to correct that, especially if the person who had that happen was the one who fixed it. Yes. And I will put the tweet of his correction in the show notes for our listeners because it was a pretty great tweet. Lastly, we noticed some people are tuning in for the first time sort of halfway through Podcast 13, which is great. So we welcome you. If you are new, I'm Miranda. I have six-sevenths of a PhD in English, and this is my best friend Jillian. Hi, I am Jillian Nussbaum, and I have a degree in Film and Media Studies. Do we have any fun facts about ourselves? Share one about the other person. Miranda watches TV so intensely that if something tense happens in the show, her biceps are sore the next day because of how hard she clenches. (laughs) That's true! And Jillian once got a free pillow on the internet because she complimented it. Oh! I have it right here! It says, Sweet dreams are made of cheese! Thanks, Argento. (laughs) Sponsor this podcast! Sponsor this podcast! Um, okay. Um, okay. Your summary for the week is... A mishap in the warehouse leaves Micah behaving strangely on a mission with Pete in Vegas. Claudia and Lena clash with Artie over his rigid worldview while they all work together to figure out a curious change in a familiar artifact. (laughs) Well, um, excellent. So, this leads us to our Writer's Appreciation Corner for this week. This episode was written by Benjamin Robb and Derek A. Hughes, another writing team. Before they worked on Warehouse 13, they worked together on Andromeda. They were executive story editors on Warehouse 13 who went on to earn producing credits on the show. After Warehouse 13, they went on to write for Beauty and the Beast, the TV series, The Flash, and co-executive produce Arrow. Between The Flash and Arrow, they also worked on Scream Season 3, but curiously, that isn't listed on either of their IMDb pages, so I can't say for certain whether they were writer-producers there as well, but I believe they were writer-producer credits. They also both write-slash-wrote comics. Rob wrote for The Phantom, X-Men New Mutants, Fantastic Four, and JLA Shogun of Steel. Together they wrote Warehouse 13 comics and Seven Brothers and something called Living in Infamy. It was harder to find information about their comic writing credits all in one place, so some sources only listed one of their names on certain things while other places listed both. So for anyone who knows more about this, please tweet us and we'll put additional information in our show notes. So so we open in Medias Race, where something is going down between Pete and Micah. Micah says, think this through. Pete says, I'm taking the artifact. And Micah says, I can't let you do that, Pete. And that he goes to put her in handcuffs. They fight. Micah wins, and Pete is knocked out. But 
Literally, the thing I noticed from the first shot was that Micah was noticeably wearing makeup. Now, I'm sure she usually wears, like, foundation or whatever, or maybe she's just that naturally pretty because, I mean, she probably is. But, like, she doesn't wear noticeable eyeliner. And immediately, immediately I just went, nope, something, something's weird. Yes, and that's my exact note. It's immediately obvious that both characters are dressed to the nines, and although Pete, it's like, yeah, he's dressed up really nice, and we see them do these sort of black tie events sometimes, so that makes sense. Micah, we've seen her wear little black dresses before, but she Never has... little. She's worn black dresses, but she likes to be covered. This is still, I think, pretty unsophisticated, but this eye makeup is super different. Um, I wrote down that this is a true smoky eye. We have seen her wear, like, a taupe or like a gray blue eyeshadow it's not that she never wears eyeshadow but she has the eyeliner on the bottom and the actual like i want to say crevice but that's not the right word crease thank you self um (laughs) she has the crease of her eyes done in the the proper makeup artist way at least in 2009 um we would do it different now so yes it's unusual for her And although her knocking out bad guys is not unusual, and her being powerful and good at fighting is not unusual, this thing with Pete and her just throwing him to the ground and him getting knocked down is very surprising. Yeah, she's all about protecting her partner. Yeah, so... so yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from there, we get a Chiron that says 14 hours earlier, and we are at the Warehouse 13 office where Artie and Lena are arguing about fighting McPherson. Lena is very worried about Artie. She tells Artie to let Mrs. Frederick handle it. Oh, yeah. Lena points to an evidence board and says, This is your job, and you're not doing it, which is. A really important interaction for reasons we can talk about now and reasons we can't talk about now. But for this episode, we'll just say it really shows how much she does care about Artie, which I really liked because she might really understand everyone's emotions all the time, but that doesn't mean she's not human and she doesn't, you know, want to yell at you sometimes and express her emotions in not this perfect really zen way all the time she's still like a person and I I like seeing that yes and I would note too that while Lena is upset at Artie for really valid reasons we also see that he is wearing a sling on his arm from the previous episode so it's a really good reminder that he was seriously injured and a lot of her frustration is coming from how involved he got with McPherson and how reckless he got because of this like obsessive following of this particular bad guy yes and Lena also mentions that (laughs) that Artie has been keeping Pete Micah and Claudia stuck in the warehouse doing inventory yeah in 106 we saw Artie really struggling to verbalize how much he cared about Pete and how upset he was when Pete experienced medical death, technical death. But his actions in the last episode left us and definitely Micah in doubt about how much he actually did really care and value their lives. So I think we as an audience can see that Artie's desire (laughs) to just keep them in the warehouse where he can keep them relatively safe is really his version of an expression of love, which I really like. Um, but Lena's like, no, you're letting cases pile up. Like, you're letting people get hurt. You have to send them on missions. Yes. We used to see 
already doing the always sunny meme where his obsession was the artifact of the week, figuring out what is like a pattern that needs addressing. And he's not doing that anymore. And this means that there are artifacts out in the world wreaking havoc while Pete and Micah are in the warehouse playing ping pong. And so Lena feels she's made her point, but is still kind of angry and starts to head out. And Artie turns to her and goes, hey, I'm pretty hard to kill. (laughs) She is very slightly reassured. Yes, I think that that is not what she wanted or needed to hear. But at least he's acknowledging that he heard her, even though he plays it off in a jokey way. Which also we know is huge growth for Artie. Like, he's historically really bad at reading people's emotions. Especially because the last thing that we saw of him in the previous episode was he saw Micah get actually teary-eyed and say that basically she felt he didn't care about her life and didn't value her as a member of the team. So seeing him get someone's emotion, even a little bit, is good growth, but we still haven't really resolved what's going on with him and Micah. Yes. So this takes us to the stacks, right? Yes. Where... (laughs) Okay, where Pete is playing ping pong with himself in a mirror that we have seen before in 102. I just wanted to point out that I think... Pete is very aware of what's going on. He knows that, like, they're taking inventory. Like, yeah, it's important that someone takes inventory, but he knows that's not really why they're there. So he's like, I'm not really going to do the work. I'm just going to play some ping pong. And Micah's like, I'm going to do my work because it is my job. (laughs) So Micah's doing all the work while he's just playing some games. Yes. And Micah is giving him a hard time. Like, Pete, these are dangerous. That's Lewis Carroll's mirror. And you're just like playing ping pong with it. And he says, Alice in Wonderland, that's chiclet, right? Which, you know, you know, he says just to piss her off. Does he? Because I was like, Pete, no one thinks that. Literally, no one has, like, it's children's literature, but no one would call it chiclet even if you're like a jock. You, it's, it, that's not. It's like a stereotype. It's like when your sister watches Doctor Who with you. (laughs) No, what my sister does. (laughs) She's not listening to this, but she might. She she calls Doctor Who Mr. Who. (laughs) And she'll be like, oh, what's new on Mr. Who tonight? And I'm like, you know, you know it's not Mr. Who. And you call it that to upset me. Yeah, that's literally exactly what Pete is doing. Because listen, if you know anything about books, you also know that Alice in Wonderland isn't chiclet. Yes. And he knows Micah grew up in a bookstore, so he's really just, he's pulling a your sister. That is, yes, accurate for his dynamics, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you allowed me to share that anecdote. <laughs> so he also uses the example of the ferret to claim that not all artifacts are dangerous, and then Micah's like, it peed in my shoes. <laughs> and he raises his hand, it's like, oh, whoops, that was me. <laughs> Which, like, we also know it was not him. Like, a grown man would not do that. And so it's just, 
Jill made this face like maybe he would. No, (laughs) he wouldn't do that. It's just him pulling her leg. Yeah, it definitely is. And the thing is, he's being so extra right now because (laughs) he can tell that she's so upset because he's being super fun and funny and she's so ready to pick a fight. So he's giving her so many opportunities to pull ridiculous fights that make her sort of step back and look at her own behavior instead of being angry with him. Yes, and I also have a fun fashion fact that you notice in this scene. Pete is wearing a tee that says North Canton, and I was like, I wonder what that is, and I looked it up, and that is Eddie McClintock's real hometown in Ohio. So someone gave him that shirt. Eddie McClintock did not go to Dartmouth, although Pete did, but Pete does have this Eddie thing. So shout out the costume designer for the whole series is Joanne Hansen. And some other time, we will have to do a little more of a spotlight on her. We definitely will. And going off of that, I just want to say, y'all better keep listening through season five because I have a really nice note about another one of his shirts that he wears then (laughs) that has a similar backstory that is really great. Yes, and also while looking that up, I found a fun fact that might not make the final cut, which is that Eddie McClintock in the year 2011, was ranked number 82 on the list of TV's sexiest men. (laughs) Congratulations, Eddie. Eddie, congrats. 82 is a great number. (laughs) Pete asks Micah if she's mad at Artie, and when she says no... No, no, no. She says, no, I'm mad at you, in the (laughs) least convincing way anyone has ever said that. And then he starts doing this amazing impression of how she like sticks her neck out when she's mad. And the thing is, I don't know if it's Joanne Kelly or Joanne Kelly's acting choice for the character or both, but whichever it is, is a thousand percent true. Micah always does that when she's mad on this show. So it's beautiful. It's like at this point, the writers have watched the actors very carefully to like capture this dialogue. Yes, it's so great. And I wrote that he does a killer Micah impression. It's fantastic. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and he tr- just like any sibling can do a killer impression of their sibling. Yes. Totally. Yes. Yes. And. He tries to put Micah at ease and say, listen, everybody has a past. And she just goes, but he lied, Pete. I really don't think it would bother Micah as much if he didn't lie to her and keep her in the dark. It would be one thing for him to say, hey, I don't want to talk about this. I went through this thing. Because that's at least sharing information and giving insight into where he's coming from. But I think it's just the complete lack of information and then information just being wrong that she has a problem with. Yes. And so then that leads into a big argument with the two of them. The mirror almost falls. They catch it, but above it, a disco ball falls to the ground. And just before we get into what happens, I just want to say, if you listen to like the teeny dialogue right as it's falling, Pete goes, oh, look, big shiny thing. (laughs) See, that's funny because I noted that while he is um, sort of looking to see what's going on, he has a momentary thought, like, maybe I should catch it, but obviously it's giant and it's falling from a really large distance, so we see him kind of directly under it, and then he makes the choice, the correct choice, by the way, to dodge and let it fall. And also, like, even... 
it's big and it's heavy, but it's also an artifact. And he's like, I don't know what it's going to do if it touches me. Well, definitely. And it's super important that Micah catches the mirror. I also just want to note that the thing that makes Micah shove Pete is he says, blah, 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 daddy issues. Yes. Oh, that was so rude. It's really rude. Again, it's like a sibling thing where it's true and he's saying it in a jokey way, like, and it just gets to her in just the right way. Mm-hmm. So then the disco ball crashes to the ground and Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive starts playing as like <laughs> the disco lights spin around and light up the warehouse. And Claudia sees the lights and hears the music from her spot on the balcony and just goes sick and starts dancing, which is excellent because... Yeah, she's here to help, but she obviously knows, well, there's nothing I can do until someone tells me what to do in this situation, so I'm just gonna dance. Yes, and I think it's such a good move. I felt like it was a little Saturday Night Fever, the particular dance move that Claudia does. Artie also is alerted to something being up, and he clearly knows that it's the Studio 54 disco ball. He says that he hates disco, which is just the opposite of Claudia's response. (laughs) Well, I think that's the difference of having lived through it versus only having seen it in movies. (laughs) Well, yeah, we get a joke later where Claudia doesn't even really know what disco is because she's too young. And interestingly, on the floor of the warehouse while this is occurring, Micah is holding up that mirror and she's kind of transfixed in the mirror. But Pete is hunched over covering his ears And I just wrote that I wanted to discuss this with Jill because it's like, is he just doing that because he hates disco or it's loud or it's bright? Because all of that could be true. Or does he have some sort of vibe? Is he aware that an artifact is going off and he needs to hide from it? Like, there's definitely something in this action that Pete takes which shows us why he is not affected by the artifact Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know anything about the disco ball artifact, so he doesn't know in what way it's dangerous. He's also, his eyes are closed. He's not looking at anything. He's not cowering. It's just very much a, I don't know if seeing this or hearing this is a danger, so I'm just going to stay here for a few minutes and then look around. And I think the second he's like, oh wait, but Micah's still here, gotta see if she's okay, that's when he stands up. You know, we've talked before, he's super goofy, but he's super smart. Definitely, and it also seems that, like any artifact, there's a period where it's active and then it calms down. So it's singing, I will survive, and then when it stops, he turns back, and Micah is kind of losing her ability, her strength. She's a little something by what has happened, And she falls back a little bit just in time to have Pete leap in and catch the mirror from falling over. And he says, Micah, are you okay? And just then, Artie runs in and says, what's going on? And she looks kind of out of it and just goes, ask him, and then leaves. Yes, and as she walks away, looking what we might think is exasperated. I just wrote freaked. She looks freaked. For me, the great thing is that if it was your first time watching the episode and you didn't know what had just happened, when Micah says, ask him, it could be because it was Pete's fault that the artifact fell over. Yeah. But in reality, because it's not Micah, it's that that 
character inside Micah's body genuinely doesn't know and is saying it for a totally different but non-obvious reason. And as she walks away, this little twinkly music box sound plays. And I think that that's just brilliant for indicating that something is up. And then when we find out what's up, it's like the perfect sound that we get a couple more cues with throughout the episode. Yes. Um, And then we go out to the opening credits. Yes, the theme music. Yes. And then we are back in Act 2, which immediately, like, the lighting was beautiful, but it was so orange, which is our symbol of danger if you're just listening to this episode for the first time, which we know for our color theory is, like, a big issue. And the conversation is also really surreal between Lena and Micah because Lena says, I know you're feeling lost, And I like this because we know Lena has this ability to look at Micah's aura and clearly what she's seeing is lostness in Micah's aura because this other, you know, character has just jumped into Micah's body and doesn't belong there. Spoiler alert. (laughs) I have so many connections. First of all, I would say this is better than Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation, who says really vague things about emotions, and I love her, but it's more specific than Troy in The Next Generation, but less specific than something like in Buffy, the episode from season four, Who Are You?, where there is a witch character, we love you, Tara, (laughs) who recognizes immediately because she's a powerful witch that someone has swapped bodies and they're energy is not their own. Yeah, she's not seeing whose energy belongs to who, she's just seeing what the energy says. Yes, Lena is onto something, and everyone's onto something a little bit, but in a very realistic way. Like, we can see that something is up with Micah, but there could be a rational explanation, especially considering all of the struggles that Micah has recently gone through and that Artie has, you know, been difficult about. So Lena listens thoughtfully to Micah. She says, I know you're feeling lost. And Micah says, I'm feeling really clear, actually. Things are the way they are. And I just need to go with it because whenever I don't, I end up back in the same place. And she says same place with like a bite to it like a little bit of anger but then she turns to Lena and smiles and my note that I wrote down was Micah's too quick with the smile something's wrong yes because Micah doesn't put people at ease with a smile and if she does it's an awkward smile you know like when she was on that date with Jeff but you know that whole like haha I don't know what I'm gonna do so I'm gonna smile it's not a natural reaction Micah is a fix a pro- like see a problem, address the problem, fix the problem kind of person. Yes. And then Artie arrives with pastries. Yes, so we both have probably the same thing to say about the pastries, right? Artie brings out a huge bag of pastries and what does Micah do? She grabs one immediately with no hesitation. Immediately. Like excitedly. Like gleefully grabs what I mean. It looks like a sugary pastry, right? It yeah. looks like something... It looks like a big scone. Yes, it does look like a big scone. Something that Micah would not normally eat. Even if she did stress eat, 
it's not gleefully it's like grumpily yeah when she was eating that ice cream in the first episode she was like angrily eating ice cream (laughs) which is such a shame no one should ever angrily (laughs) eat ice cream this has been a psa from miranda butler so Artie seems to notice as micah digs into a pastry that something is wrong but being Artie, he asks if she changed her hair (laughs) he is not onto it i mean if lena didn't guess Artie's not yes. going to guess. Artie's the last person to guess. Artie always offers Micah cookies, and Pete is the only one who ever takes them. So that's just why it's funny. Yeah. Okay, so just then, Pete and Claudia enter, arguing about a video game on Pete's phone. Because Claudia really wants a turn, which it appears she was promised. And Pete is like, uh-uh-uh, you can't, it's my turn. Yes, and can I say that I thought it was cute because it's super brotherly, And it shows me that Pete's dynamic is always very brotherly, even if it's not just with Micah. His his go-to is brotherly, which I think is really great when you are a man surrounded by strong women. You treat them in this way that is, on the one hand, a brother is very respectful, but on the other hand is willing to have fun with you because like that's how close you are yeah and also I feel like his dynamic with Claudia is slightly older brothery whereas his dynamic with Micah is kind of younger brothery like (laughs) he wants to have fun with Claudia but he's also like you must be protected (laughs) totally yeah and they're having all of this fun um Artie is like what are you doing here to Claudia because she's not an agent yet he tries to make her leave uh because he says there was actually some really great dialogue there hey writers um (laughs) they say I didn't write down the exact dialogue but he was like well everyone just like listen up and pay attention and then he turns to Claudia and is like what are you doing here and she goes listening up and paying attention and he like doesn't know what to do Oh, it's focus. Yeah. Will you all just focus? And he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, focusing. Yeah, it's so funny because he's really prepared to yell at her for, like, not paying attention or not listening, but he just doesn't know how to respond to her following the rules in a snarky fashion. So he just gives up and continues with the lecture and the briefing. This is what's so great about Claudia is the way she follows directions snarkily. Yes. Like, this is what makes her so powerful first of all she does break rules and do do really impressive things but she also when she follows them claudia nails it because she knows Artie, and this is how she gets him to let her stay because he's like uh i don't know how to respond so i guess just stay there and claudia is happy she's kind of like bantering with pete and micah just jumps in and i forget what she says but it's something like can we just all like listen and claudia clearly is upset by this like having her happiness just overruled by Micah wanting to get on with things and it seems like Claudia is taken aback by Micah saying this yeah it's like almost offended but not quite like just like the rest of us something isn't quite right and Claudia registers it um Micah says can we just all let Artie get through this so that we don't have to be here any longer than necessary yes so I feel like Claudia is like really annoyed by Micah's jumping down everyone's throats. But also I think that maybe she's thinking Micah still really doesn't want to be around Artie. So when he's like, let's just let Artie get through this, Artie smiles and goes, thank you. Like he's the only one in the room who's not weirded out by what just happened. And then she goes, you're welcome. 
Which, again, it's... No. <laughs> it's not Micah to be that chirpy and that... I don't know. Whatever she's being. Yeah. So, that leads Artie to present the case. And he says the names of our uh, suspects for this week. And it's going to be hard for me because one of them is named Jillian. Yeah, I know. It's so weird for me, too. Gary and Jillian Whitman are small-time thieves who have inexplicably hit the big time. And this is very interesting for a couple of reasons. Obviously, Jillian is my (laughs) co-host. But less obviously, Whitman is a literary name. And you know I'm here for the literary (laughs) names. And the importance, I think, of this one is not thematic, really. Um, Whitman being like an American, I don't know, what is he, transcendentalist. But they were almost exact contemporaries living throughout the majority of the 19th century. So I looked this up. Walt Whitman lived 1818 to 1892, and Lewis Carroll lived 1832 to 1898. So that's pretty close, and it puts us, at least if you're an English major or poetry fan, puts us in thinking terms of the 19th century. So that's... That's my fun fact, and then we get back to the scene. Yes, where Artie gives Pete and Micah case files in, like, small, what are they called, expanding files instead of manila envelopes. Um, And Micah looks in hers and is real disappointed and goes, where's the money? And he goes, oh, there's $10,000 in Pete's because they have to go to Vegas and roll high and get into contact with these people who would be in high roller rooms. So she's really excited. She reaches for the money, and Pete, like, pulls it away and is like, uh-uh-uh, I don't think so, which is really funny. And I also want to note that when Micah gets her folder, it very obviously says her name on it. And I do think that, you know, woman inside Micah's body would realize her name pretty quick, but it is helpful as just exposition that her name is on the folder. She knows who she is and what she needs to know from receiving, like, the briefing for the warehouse. Yes. And no words are spoken except Artie. He holds up the tray of pastries and offers them, and nobody takes them except Micah, who takes another one, which... Yes. No. (laughs) I mean, yes, but no. Um, And... Then he goes to take one, and Claudia gives him a look like, you know you shouldn't be eating that. And he's like, fine, and puts it down, which is, I don't advocate for fat shaming, but we do know that Lena, quote, has Artie on a diet. Like, he's probably, like, a doctor's probably told him, like, watch your cholesterol, and Lena is enforcing that (laughs) doctor's orders. And so I just wrote in my notes, is Claudia in cahoots with Lena? Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Which I would believe because Claudia and Lena have this great friendship that we saw developed a couple episodes ago. And we'll see throughout this episode, partly because of Artie just having been stabbed, Claudia is taking care of him a little bit. And it's really, I think, important that we see the care go both ways. It's not just his fatherly love for her, but her daughterly love back. Absolutely. And then... Micah and Pete go to leave. Micah leaves first. And first of all, if Micah said goodbye, she would just be like, all right, I'll call you when we're there or something like that. She, in a sort of weird voice, just goes, boys, and then leaves. And, like, every everything about it, like, made my skin crawl. I was like, Some, something is weird. I don't like it. I agree. They leave. 
Pete turns to leave. Artie stops Pete. And Pete's like, yes, yes, I'll bring receipts. I know, like, he's probably gotten in trouble yeah. for not expensing things. And he goes, no, like, I just wanted to know, is Micah still mad at me? And <laughs> Pete struggles to gently break it to Artie, yes. <laughs> so he goes, no, well, yeah, just well, a, a little, bye. <laughs> it's really good. I like it. And that's when Artie and Claudia get up. And no words, Claudia just helps Artie put his jacket on because his arm is, you know, out of commission. And then, you know, starts talking casually about what's going on, you know, what what can she do to help help find McPherson, which is the important part. And so she's like, I know Mrs. F says you can't do it, but like I can do it. And Artie gets really scary. Yeah, he says, I'm going to say this once and like she's prepared. For whatever he's gonna say yeah. and then he just gets real loud and real in her face and goes back off and she falls back into her chair and it's like oh uh, okay um and is a li- really taken aback and then Artie <laughs> takes the scone and spitefully takes a bite out of it just as if to assert his dominance and i will not be listening to your dietary advice <laughs> oh my gosh jillian jillian you do know the great scene of the importance of being earnest i of course I where do. they oh shoot what are they grumpily eat cakes yes. what is it it's so funny so here's your fun fact check from post-production it is act two of the importance of being earnest and algernon is eating muffins it's such a good play and a 90s, like 1890s, 19th century play where the characters joke about eating cakes and biscuits grumpily. Um, so that could be on purpose or just on accident. And I think also it should be noted that Allison's acting when her face falls, she's in the chair. She's a small woman um, and you see that like childlike yes sir from her. And it's not like Artie is dangerous but he is making his point very clear to her well it's just like any dad like there's the fun guy you can joke around with and then there's dad mode dad who has laid down the law yes and we know it's because he loves claudia and doesn't want her to die so that's why he's so putting his foot down well yeah he saw that man chop another man's head off he ran a sword through this agent who's been a warehouse agent for over 30 years and before that worked for the nsa pete and micah who are trained and at their peak physical fitness level in their lives right now were almost destroyed by him like claudia wouldn't stand a chance as far as Artie's concerned and from there we get a great chiron as we transition yes to vegas and we see Ooh, lots of things. It's a wonderful establishing sort of montage, and I think it's really nicely done. Well, yes, it is, but it's also really unsettling. And I got really uncomfortable vibes just because at first I thought, well, it's just, first of all, a lot of things Micah wouldn't normally do. She wouldn't put on red lipstick. She wouldn't expose a tattoo on the job, which I wonder, by the way, if it really is her tattoo. Like, she wouldn't wear a dress that short. There was, like, a lot of things like that. But also I noticed that all of those quick shots we see at the beginning are body segmentation shots, which we never get of Micah. Oh, that's so good. She's always shown as a full human, and... I generally don't like body segmentation, but because we don't normally get shots like that of her, 
it adds to that feeling of this being unusual and it being someone but not Micah. And it adds to that ill at ease tension of her character. Yes. It was almost here, it was like, look at all these things that aren't correct. That's not correct, and that's not correct, and that. It was really cool. And I want to comment on the tattoo because the tattoo is of infinity, and we are going to get a really excellent clip from today's artifact expert about Lewis Carroll and the concept of infinity. So I absolutely believe for two reasons that this is not Micah slash Joanne Kelly's tattoo. The first is because we thematically have the concept of infinity throughout this episode in the subtext of Charles Dodgson, which again, we'll talk about later. And second of all, we, at least for the character of Micah, have the shot in the pilot of her taking off her shoes which I do not recall any ankle tattoo of. And Ooh. I could be wrong, but I remember that shot really well, and I have a super good memory. Jillian knows this. Yes. I don't, like, I would have noticed a tattoo, and I think it's drawn on for the concept of the disco ball that our artifact expert is going to discuss later. Also, that's just super extra violating, because you know where you can get a really cheap, quick tattoo? Vegas. Oh, Exactly. So it's like, well, Victorian women loved tattoos. This is exactly. a true fact. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, sorry. Oh, so Pete knocks on, well, someone knocks on Micah's door and we see, no, no, we see it's Pete walking down a hallway saying hi to some couple, just being a friendly dude. Hey. And they're like, oh, hey. So then he goes to Micah's door and knocks on it and immediately notices when she answers that she's wearing perfume. And she says, your tie's crooked, and then he, like, looks at what she's wearing, and he goes, you just knocked everything crooked, which is his way of saying, you look really nice. <laughs> and he also, I love, says, va-va-voom. <laughs> I think that Pete is complimenting her while still being respectful. Um, the thing that I noticed in the shot where Micah gets up and walks to the door is just how obvious the silhouette of the dress is which is fine, and she looks amazing, but and then the film language is very much indicating to us, first of all, like, the angles are kind of sexy, and second of all, I think Joanne Kelly does an amazing job acting as this other character, because she's walking with a more sway to her hips, and a more sexy feeling about herself. And she and sticks her butt way out when she, like, leans over to get something. Like, it's all on purpose. It's all purposeful. And she's created this whole character's movement for Micah and then just violates all of those choices in very purposeful ways. So Pete comes in and starts asking about any leads or ideas that Micah has. And she says these vaguely mathy things. She says Carson's rule of linear transfer dictates that they have to have the object, whatever the artifact is, on them uh, because forced outcomes require tangency. Yes. Which I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it's vaguely mathy, but it's nonsense. So I did ask the artifact expert for this week, who's a mathematician, about this line. My expert, did, like, verified that it's mathy things, but didn't understand what was being suggested. So what were you <laughs> going to say? I was going to say, I don't think it was a mathematical rule at all. I was going to say, I think that it's part of the warehouse rules. Like, they're doing this whole type of 
science that only they understand. There's got to be a rule book about how artifacts work that someone has written up that's part of the manual that Micah always reads. Oh, interesting. So I feel like Carson is some former warehouse agent and figured out this rule of linear transfer about how it relates to specific artifacts. Because I looked up Carson's rule, but the only one I can find is about, like, bandwidth, which isn't really relevant. So, yes, I see that too. And I like the idea that certain mathematical concepts that perplexed someone like Charles Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, would possibly have more logical sense in the warehouse. Yeah, I think they might explain artifacts. And we do get another sense that there is this greater world of rules that the two of them are learning, because later when Pete confronts Jillian, which is really weird to say, (laughs) there aren't a lot of Jillians, so, like, just saying that in third person feels weird. But um, when he confronts her about it, he looks at her hand when he sees what she's holding is the artifact and goes, that's a contact wound. It happens with wishing artifacts. Like there is a set of rules that apply to artifacts that clearly they're both learning. Yes. And lastly, Pete got some ear thingies. Um, You know the thingies. I call them comms. That's what we always call them at work when characters use them. Yeah. He makes a good joke that he cleaned them and added some spit. And then he's like, no, no, I didn't. But that's another weird Micah reaction, because I feel like Micah would have just been like, ugh, gross, and just sort of laughed. She would have laughed, yeah. Yeah, whereas... Not Micah. This person in Micah's... Yeah, whereas not Micah just, like, gives him, like, a really serious, like, ew, gross kind of look, and he's like, I'm kidding. Um, And even if he wasn't, like, you know, they've gone through worse together. Spitting in your ear thingies is not bad. Yeah. So we go back to the warehouse. Yes, and Claudia and Artie are in the stacks. Uh, Claudia is struggling to hang up the disco ball with Artie. Artie's trying to help, but he's uh, one arm down. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) He says it contains trapped desires. Yes, and can I quote it directly? The disco ball projects yearnings and cravings. So instead of reflecting, it's like actively releasing things out And it imparts inhumanity against anything decent. And there's a cute line that he says, in here it's a round shiny object, out there it's, and Claudia goes, the 80s? And he goes, the 70s. So yes, I think this is really interesting because there's a lot of different artifacts today and our expert that we interviewed is my friend and colleague Brittany, a mathematician who studies Lewis Carroll, but I did email correspond with an expert on Studio 54, which was a disco club in the 70s and very, very important in that culture. And I just want to read, so she sent me an email just providing some basic info about Studio 54. So this is from Carol Cooper, who is a longtime New York music journalist, and in her email she said something about the studio you may not have known, as told to me by radio DJ and creator of The Quiet Storm, Vaughn Harper. Before it opened, and I'm reading now, Studio 54's velvet rope and basic dance music format was borrowed from the top black-owned Manhattan club at the time, called Leviticus. Harper, one of five radio-affiliated partners in the club, 
which took over ground floor space in a hotel opposite Madison Square Garden on 7th Avenue, recalls that Ian and Steven, the creators of Studio 54, came frequently to the venue in the months before they launched Studio 54. A velvet rope was always set out before the doorway, not only for crowd control and to enforce a mild dress code, but to mark the space as something special. Schrager and Rubel, so that's Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager, the co-creators of Studio 54, borrowed many aspects of Leviticus, the Black-owned club, and then added their own innovations. Leviticus was one of five Black-owned nightclubs catering to a Black audience. There is no reason why they would not have checked out all the more successful ones. So I just wanted to point this out because there is a big history of the New York disco scene being a space for both queer people and African-American people, as well as like interracial relationship um, people and, and things like that in a time when that was less common. So this was just an interesting email that the music journalist sent to me in response to, hey, what are some things to know about Studio 54? And of course, the disco era is known for like being very sexy and fun and dance heavy, which I think is all the inspiration that this artifact is taking um, is just about that craving for sex and fun and partying and, and all of that. But there is also an amazingly important history of what that scene provided that is less negative and in fact very positive. So yeah, it's really great. And it also is like, yeah, if something is a haven for queer people and interracial couples and all the kinds of things that you just mentioned, if they need a haven, it's because they don't have those feelings in a lot of other spaces. So it makes sense that in some way those would be trapped in that disco ball that they all danced under. Yes. Which which I also just really like because Claudia's like, in a disco ball? How? How would that become an artifact? Which, like, yeah, when you think about the actual mechanics of how it wound up in the disco ball, that is a really funny thing to think about because Artie's just like, I don't know. And we'll get to, like, a huge plot point in a second. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, I just want to say that there's a really, really beautiful little exchange between Claudia and Artie that I really love. Artie turns to Claudia and goes... I'm sorry for being a little too harsh Uh, with you. Understatement. But also, like, I feel like he's like, listen, I want want to apologize because I was scary, but I don't want to apologize for my meaning because I am scared for you is sort of the subtext. And um, Claudia says, no, it's okay. I just offered to help because, you know, he hurt you and it pissed me off. It's so genuine, her voice, when she says that. Like, she wants to protect Artie. Yeah, it was just, it was so sweet. And he's like, and she's like, yeah, and, like, I owe you because, like, you helped with Josh. But really, she was just playing it off because she actually is like, you hurt this person that's important to me and I hurt the people who hurt the things that are important to me. Um, yeah. Which is great. And then they argue more playfully about McPherson as they lift up the mirror, at which point Artie notices something in the mirror and they turn back to find, dun-dun-dun, Micah! Yes, and so that argument they're having playfully right before they notice it is about McPherson, and I just love that what Claudia says is like, what, did something lure him to the dark side? 
And I love the Star Wars joke, but I also love Artie being like, no, he is the dark side, and he lures people to him. So they do get interrupted, and that's just where we get more focus on this very um, important plot point of Micah trapped in the mirror. But it's it's interesting that we learn this about McPherson. Like, Yeah. And when we see Micah... We see that she is screaming Artie, but we can't hear anything. It's scary. And then we go out to black, which is like, this is another truly great example of an, of an excellent act break, which we've talked about before. This leaves us asking so many questions that don't have easy answers that really make us want to come back. So we return for act three. And yeah, that's back in Vegas, where we get our first angle on the suspects. Gary and Jillian, chatting um, while they gamble. So, this is a great opportunity to introduce a special segment that I would like to call Eureka Moments. <laughs> and that's because our two guest stars today were also main characters in Eureka, which I think most of our listeners, if they were watching Warehouse 13 live, would have also been watching Eureka live because it was a lot of crossover audience and actually a crossover universe later on. So these two actors are Erica Serra and Niall Matter. Erica played the character Joe Lupo on Eureka. That was the deputy sheriff. And she is known for a lot of great science fiction roles. She guested on Battlestar Galactica. She guested on Smallville. Um, you may also recognize her more recently as the AI Allie in The 100. Um, she's also been in The L Word. Niall Matter plays the bad boy genius guy, Zane Donovan. And this is interesting because that is no relation to Claudia, but these two characters have the same last name. And a fun fact I found about him is that he became an actor after he had worked on an oil rig and gotten in an accident. Oh, man. So that's a real life yeah. change, shift in direction. But when you look at this guy... Like, if this was an episode of The Bachelor, he would be the hot oil worker. Like, that, that's, like, believable in both. But then he was like, you know where I belong? Acting. Um, so he had a main role in the Canadian teen drama The Best Years, which is actually a really great show. If you can find it, watch it. It's really good. And he also has guested in sci-fi shows like Stargate Atlantis, iZombie, Supernatural, and then um, things like Melrose Place and, more recently, The Good Doctor. So these are the actors that we have a sort of mini spotlight on. And then if you were a person who watched Eureka, it's really nice because they are not only a common ship, but like a, eventually, spoilers, a sort of couple in the show. And the way that they specifically the writers put these two actors in is that this would have been the end of Eureka season three and so they had first expressed romantic interest in each other at the end of Eureka season two and we've been if you're viewers of Eureka we've been watching that bloom and grow and hoping to see something happen so then seeing them here as a married couple is like 
of wish fulfillment for the people that want them together. And then I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen Eureka, which you should, it's great. But we get a resolution in Eureka as well as a big, crazy sort of story revolving around their romance in the end of season four. So we have a sweet spot for these two actors as well as their characters just being romantically involved. So yeah, thank you. Um, They are gambling and Gary wants to keep gambling, but Jillian is kind of telling him that she wants to stop. And while they do that, they sort of, well, while they do that, they mention their future and like having children. You can see there are a couple who loves each other, but also there's something happening with this gambling thing. Yeah, like they're they're both doing what they're doing, whatever it is, for a future that they've both somewhat agreed upon. He wants more kids than she does. But they're both doing it for that same purpose, but they're disagreeing about how uh, intensely they need to do whatever they're doing. Yeah, and I think this is important too because we're going to face that question today again of like where the parameters of the warehouse end in that... Pete and Micah aren't going to arrest them. And it's okay with us that they don't. We don't think these are bad people. We think these are sympathetic people who owe a lot of debts and want to earn money and pay them off and then create a new life. And also, even when you're dealing with people who would normally be arrested, because these are, you know, low-level con artists, I think there's also a sense that for the most part, even normal criminals don't deserve the kinds of negative things that artifacts can bring them. Yeah, because definitely. it's so it's so far away from an equitable punishment. More weird things happen, and we notice. Um, I want to point it out because even though we have noticed small things about Micah that are off, I think this is where we start to sort of see the mask slip. Sort of like a sense that whoever is inside Micah's body right now doesn't intend to be with the warehouse very long because she's not trying as hard to seem like this other person. And I noticed that her voice is higher, it's breathier, and her word choices are bizarre. Yes. So Pete says, did you notice anything weird? And she goes, no, except for a couple scoundrels. <laughs> and I was like, wait... I mean, Micah has a big vocabulary, and she would say the word scoundrels, but not earnestly. Yes, absolutely. Especially not to Pete. Earnestly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so he, Pete says he's going to go up to their room and basically break in and see if whatever it is isn't actually on them. And I feel like fake Micah knows she's right. The object has to be on them. But she's like, yeah, go up and look in their room because she just wants to get away from Pete and get away from everyone. And so he says, call me if you see someone chewing on a rabbit's foot or adjusting a magic girdle. And again, Micah doesn't laugh, which she totally would laugh normally. And that's interesting too, because I only heard the magic girdle. I didn't hear the joke about the rabbit's foot, which is super, super appropriate because we had 
you and I, Jillian, those fake rabbit's feet keychains growing up, like, that was a trend, I think, for for a decade or more. Oh, yeah. As a good luck charm that was this little fuzzy thing on a keychain. So it makes sense that it's sort of a luck, you know, casino thing. It's a rabbit's foot. But then, obviously, with the Lewis Carroll stuff later, the, the idea of a rabbit is really fitting. Exactly. So does that take us now to... To the warehouse where Artie and Claudia wheel out the mirror and they're ready to investigate what this reflection is. And Artie says he wants all of the Dodgson files pulled, which if you are not a fan of Lewis Carroll, this is our very well-written exposition that explains to us that Charles Dodgson is the real name of Lewis Carroll. That was a pen name. And... So it's like anything to do with this, including Alice Liddell, which is the real life young woman who was a friend of the family that inspired, you know, Lewis Carroll to write Alice in Wonderland. And we just get that all nicely laid out so that Claudia is supposed to go looking for those files and then Lena arrives. Yes. And they unveil the mirror in front of Lena and... Then they have a conversation that involves a lot of complicated math stuff that I don't have answers for, but what I will say is what we're left wondering is, is this a part of Micah's psyche that's trapped in the mirror, or is all of her trapped in the mirror? Those are the options that are presented to us at that time. Yes, and Lena wants to find out if this thing trapped in the mirror is, like, quote-unquote alive, and that's when... Artie and Lena, as if they have had to deal with something similar before, have Artie take Lena's belt, which makes Claudia react hilariously. Like, what are you doing? Um, Yeah. But Artie, of course, just being a dad looking out for his agents or his co, you know, colleagues slash friends, he's like, I'm just holding on so she doesn't fall in, Um, holds Lena's belt as she reaches into the mirror. Or tries. To investigate, Yeah. And Lena tells us that the glass is too much of a barrier. She can't really get through and read anything. Mm-hmm. And Claudia wants to talk to whoever's inside. More specifically, Claudia says, I want to talk to her. Artie makes her call it, makes her call Micah an it, which, oof. And he says, we don't converse with reflected entities, like, just as a rule. <laughs> he's definitely, and he says later he's experienced something, he's been burned by this kind of stuff before, but Claudia's like, why? And he goes, because Bloody Mary! And she's like, isn't that just a myth? No, of, of course it's not just a myth, yeah. <laughs> and I love the, it's not quite the same as off-screen storytelling, but all of the suggestions when you get the idea that Bloody Mary is also related to an artifact, like... That he may or may not have encountered. Yes! Yeah. Any other things that we actually know in real life could be warehouse artifacts. Um, So, we're still in the Warehouse 13 office, but we now intercut with Vegas, where Artie calls Pete on the Farnsworth. Pete is still hooked on the comms with Micah, so Micah's hearing everything. And Artie asks if Pete has a vibe. And he's like, what about Micah? And they're like, yeah, just, you know, any any vibe. Already failing to play it cool because he doesn't understand human emotions. And Pete's like, you know, the buffet is really overpriced, like in a really dramatic fashion, which is so Pete. 
Um, but he's like, hey, hey, is there something I should know? And Artie's like, no, 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 and just, like, hangs up. <laughs> My reading on this is that Pete definitely knows something's up. He definitely has, whether it's a vibe vibe or just a friend vibe, he definitely knows. But I think there are three distinct things happening. First, he knows whatever's happening, Micah is listening in on. So he can't admit anything's up without giving away that he's onto her. Also, I think he doesn't trust Artie as much as he's saying. Like, I think he he really cares for Artie. He doesn't have bad vibes about Artie, but I think he's still kind of hurt about the same things Micah's hurt about, but he's being stronger because she needs him to be the stronger one right now. And then finally, I think that Pete has very clearly demonstrated that his partnership with Micah comes first. So, you know, he wasn't gonna rat on her when she was hearing voices of her dead lover. He wasn't gonna let her slip into a coma in that jail cell in... In Colorado, in magnetism. Yeah, in Colorado. And he's not gonna rat on her now to the person who she trusts the least in their dynamic. Yeah. I could go either way right now. You've given me a pretty convincing read that Pete is onto something. And then definitely we know later he's onto it. I don't. I think he knows something's wrong, but I don't think he minds it. Because, you know, Micah's dressing a certain way and acting a certain way. And I think at this point he might even just be like, yeah, something's probably wrong. Or maybe she's just letting off steam and this is how she lets off steam and she just gets a little looser. Who knows? I like that too, that he he could just be open to the idea that she wants to go to Vegas and have a good time. Especially because she was so burnt out so recently and wasn't allowed to take a vacation day. Yes, and he said the thing which we don't like earlier, which was like, a little time in Vegas will unbunch the pants. Um, (laughs) I think now that he said it more than once, I'm less bothered by it. Like, he wasn't saying it to be sexist. I think that's just like a go-to phrase for him. I think so too, and I think... He specifically says pants instead of panties here. And he specifically says it in a way that's, like, obvious anyone who needs a day off would benefit from going to Vegas. So I like that he doesn't do anything other than compliment her for dressing sexy. And he seems willing to let her have a good time until he figures out something. Yeah. And so this was the end of the phone call where Pete... Plays off, makes a joke about the buffet being overpriced. And how does he end that phone call, Jill? He ends the phone call by saying, Kirk out! And just hanging up the Farnsworth. And so we had a fun tweet from one of the... One half of the writing team of this episode, Benjamin Robb, who told us that that was the first time in the series that Pete had said that. Now... This is something we actually already knew from our interview with Eddie McClintock, who gave his own perspective on the filming of that scene, which we will share with you here. I used to take the, uh, this was back when flip phones, you know, we had flip phones. Oh, I know. (laughs) And I had this, uh, I had this flip phone and every time I would flip it, I used to flip it open like the, um, the Star Trek communicator and I'd be like, Kirk Enterprise, Kirk (laughs) Enterprise. Kirk out and flip it back. And, and I started doing that with the with the um, the Farnsworth. <laughs> and I remember um, it was the what episode was it? Uh, maybe even the bodies. Uh, no, 
it was the Alice Liddell episode, I think. Okay. And um, where Pete and Mike a kiss in the hall, and then something happens, and and uh, I just during the scene I went Kirk out and flipped the <laughs> Farnsworth clothes, and I remember the writers were like, "Wait, he said Kirk out. What did he, did he say? Kirk out. He said Kirk out. Can we put that in? Call back to LA. Call back. <laughs> Is that all right? Are we, are we any infringement? Or can we say Kirk out? And they're like. We got Kirk out. They can, he can say Kirk out. Okay. <laughs> and so, so then we just we just started adding in more and more stuff like that. Um, little um, little you know, as you said earlier, Easter eggs for for the audience, you know, and and for the sci-fi fans across the spectrum. I love it. Um, yes. And then we go back to the Vegas gambling area. I don't know anything about gambling or games, so this is going to be really obvious. They're at a roulette table. Yes, okay, they're at a Um, roulette table. But Pete first uses Artie's steampunk code breaker from episode two to break into the room. I didn't notice that, but that's amazing that we get to see it again and we have the steampunk carryover which is so, I almost just like whispered in the microphone, it's so relevant for a steampunk artifact today because we have proper, not proper, certainly a proper retrofuturism in that Alice Liddell is, slash Lewis Carroll's work is incorporated into this episode. Yes, and also it's just another example of Pete being super smart he's like look we're going to be in a hotel we'll need to get into a room we might need to figure out how a machine works so you know something that breaks codes works yes so smart of him to bring that so pete's upstairs in gary and jillian's room uh going through all of their luggage with purple gloves and at the roulette table micah spots gary holding a poker chip that flashes orange uh as he runs his finger around the edge of it and then he places a bet. Pete tells Micah over the comm that he found nothing, and Micah lies and says that she's coming up empty too. Yes. I think that's important that Micah, as she's looking at the artifact, is like, no, nothing. Yeah, and she says it in like the weirdest, most unconvincing way. Micah says, they're still winning, and I'll be damned if I know how. Which just, what? <laughs> I just made one of my famous reaction faces to that, where it's like, Micah, but you wouldn't say that. Like, honestly, listeners, I just want you to know, Miranda makes the greatest faces, but rarely makes noise while she's making the faces. So I swear to you all, I'm not just laughing at my own jokes constantly. (laughs) Um, So we go back to the warehouse. And um, Artie and Lena are arguing about the pros and cons of the situation, as Claudia enters with a device with improvised tech based on CIA laser mics. So cool. And she's like, oh yeah, I just whipped this up. You know, the CIA, they use that kind of blah, blah, blah. However, I would like to suggest that not only is this a CIA thing, which I'm sure it is because she kind of just tweaked this thing now, but it must be similar to what she used when she was speaking to Joshua. And it looks even sort of the the shape of the the laser with the old timey film camera thing. It looks similar, and that's probably why it's totally believable that she built it really quickly because this is a sort of technology she's had to deal with before. 
Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And then she turns to Artie and she says, she has the look of somebody who's trapped. I know that look and so do you. I need to do this. And she goes to turn it on and Artie holds her back, but not to stop her. He just says, let me think. He doesn't say no. He just, I think that's the most honest thing Artie can say in that moment is I'm not like when he says, let me think it encompasses the idea of I'm not saying no, but I am a person who needs to wrap his head around this before you get started. Yeah, definitely. And this is just affirming what we know about Claudia's history with Joshua and why this is so important to her. And she's insisting on doing this. And she says, if things get hinky, you can just pull the plug. I have to do this. And it it seems to convince Artie. Yes, I completely agree because it... I don't think it's necessarily what she's saying. I think it's the look of certainty that she has that he also saw back in the lab when he, you know, re-met her as an adult. That I know that people are going to think this is crazy, but give me the benefit of the doubt. I've proven that I know how to look at these things. Yes, and and Claudia doesn't have vibes the way that Pete does or skills like Lena has, but she does have just good instincts and good observation, good skills, She's a very smart young woman, and so Artie trusts her, and she's determined. Yes. Now, we're in the casino, and I have actually lots of notes on this little bit. Great, because I have none. Oh, okay. So, (laughs) we're such a good team. Pete re-enters the casino area, and he spots Gary's burned and blistered hand, and he walks to Micah and asks if she's seen anything, and Micah says, not even a glimmer, which is weird. But also, he knows, he knows that Micah observes everything. And if she has been looking at him the whole time, she would have definitely pointed that out. Yes, and even if Micah hadn't observed something that she thinks is useful, the, the truth about law enforcement and that I've heard from a lot of law enforcement officers is that something you think is mundane might actually be helpful. So if she was really Micah, she would be like, well, I don't see the artifact, but here are 20 observations about him in his regular life or whatever. Yeah. I mean, at no point would Micah ever say, no, I've seen nothing. She would have said, this is what I've seen. It may or may not be relevant. Yes. I also lied. I have one note, which is, I think she's drinking a gin and tonic. Yes, which was my next note, which is a problem. So I believe that she would hold a gin and tonic or something that looks like a gin and tonic just to look like not out of place hanging around a bar. Yes. Or a casino or whatever. But so she's trying to get Pete to go away. And she's like, yeah, I'll call you if I see anything. You might as well just, like, go or hang out or go do something. Like, something weird to try and get him to go away. And he's like, no, I'm I'm going to stay. And she's clearly disappointed by that. Mm-hmm. And then downs the drink, which, aside from the fact that I don't think that is something Micah would do generally, I specifically don't think that she would drink while on the job. Yes. I thought you were going to say, and this is also true, you know, Pete is very secure in his recovery, 
But Micah drinking, obviously, in an irresponsible way is not a good friend thing to do in front of someone in recovery. Like, yeah. many people who are in recovery can see others drink, but the way that she's just downing a heavy liquor drink is not... On the job, it's just really, like, law enforcement shouldn't drink on the job. Micah would never do anything to impair her judgment while looking for... It's just, it's really not okay. And, like, yeah, I, I was going to bring up the whole maybe she shouldn't drink in front of him kind of thing, but, you know, everyone's different, so I didn't want to make a blanket statement. But it was just really weird, and definitely you can see concern cross Pete's face. Yes. Um... So, yeah, that really upset me. But then we go back to the Warehouse 13 office where I wrote, Claudia fires up her doodad. Ah, <laughs> her dingus. <laughs> her dingus. Um, uh, and Artie says, I've been burned by this before. They look real and they'll say anything. Dun, dun, dun. So, this is a logical breaking point to pause here. Um we mentioned this on Twitter. You may not all follow us there, but we have so much amazing content for this episode. The Alice plotline is one of our all-time favorites, and it does come back. So for that reason, um, we, you know, we're at about halfway right now, so the next episode is only going to be an hour 15 or less, but we wanted to split them up to make them easier for you to download and easier for you to play on your commute or your workout or whatever it is that you do. But please come back because we have an amazing artifact expert. And that's part of the reason why it took so long to go through that is that we have a historian of math who is both a science degree in mathematics and a history, sort of like philosophical history of mathematics and literature um, specializing in the 19th century with award-winning work on Lewis Carroll's mathematics. So all of the stuff with the mirror and the disco ball and the infinity tattoo is about to make so much sense. Please stick around. If you are downloading right first thing Tuesday morning, it will probably be up in about 12 hours from now. I've got a lot of editing to do on the second half. But we appreciate you so much for downloading both halves, and we hope to see you on the other side.